You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty. Oh, to stimulate your thinking. You're listening. You're listening to Intellectual Erection. Intellectual, Intellectual, Intellectual Erection. Welcome back to Intellectual Erection. I'm your host, Patrick. Today I'm speaking with journalist and author Nicole Hodges. That's what orgasms felt like to me. It felt like dying, and I obliterated and became part of all things. If you haven't heard of Nicole yet, you should probably check it out. You might have heard of some of her work, namely Girls Who Say Fuck or Men Who Take Baths. These are two of the projects that she's worked on, and now she's coming out with a book called Oh, The Places You'll Go, O.O. It's a Seussian-style book about the female orgasm. We wax philosophical about a bunch of topics, and you are in for a real treat. The places you're going to go, you will not forget after this episode. I also want to mention a big thank you to the recent subscribers on Patreon. I have two new subscribers, both of which have been supporting me for a long time. One is my partner, Yasmin, Yaz.TheHuman on Instagram. She tried to do this anonymously, but it didn't work out so well for her. So thank you so much for supporting. And my good friend, who you can also find on Instagram under at Eden de Plume. That's E-D-E-N-D-E-P-L-U-M-E. Thank you so much for the support over the years. And you've heard both these humans on the podcast before. Yasmin's episode came out recently. Eden's episode came out as a collective episode with her partner. You can find it in her bio, and I'm sure she'll be on again. Now, if you want to support, go to patreon.com slash intellectual erection. But you know what? You can also just support by writing a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It is very useful to help launch the podcast. So if you don't want to make a financial contribution or you can't, please write a review for this podcast. If you've enjoyed any of the episodes, just write a little something there. It really, honestly does help. I want this thing to grow. I want more people to listen to it. I want them to hear all the voices in our wonderful sex-positive communities. And as always, listen, like, review, and most of all, enjoy. I'm sitting here today with... Nicole Hodges. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Well, why don't you tell the audience what it is that you do? Well, I'm still kind of figuring that out, but a few of the things that I do are, uh, I guess I guess a journalist is the way that I would describe myself, and recently I've started to adopt the title Sexual Freedom Philosopher. I have a company called Girls Who Say Fuck. For me, it's a philosophy and it's also the umbrella under which I create these different projects. And then once they're ready to come out from under girls who say fuck, I look for funding. So best examples would be two of them. Uh, men Who Take Baths, which is when I put 15 men in bubble baths and I interview them about toxic masculinity uh, and feminism. And then I host an art show with a discussion with the men. And then I also do a live interview in a bathtub with an audience member. And then I'm currently writing a book uh, about orgasms. 
written in Dr. Seuss-style verse called, Oh, the Places You'll Go, Oh, Oh. Okay. So there's quite a bit there to unpack. Yes. But before we get to all those juicy little details, what comes first is always the origin question. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, gosh, Are you familiar this. with this one? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. It's a two-parter. Okay. First part goes deep. You can choose not to answer it, but if you do, it would be Well, lovely. I'm here. Yeah. So the deep part is, if you remember the first time in your life that you encountered sex or sexuality, I'm always curious how people came across it, probably when they were very young. Mm. And if you have a memory of that. And the second part of the origin question is how you became involved with the sex positive communities. Okay. I'll answer your first question and then ask me the second question. So we'll switch gears. It's really funny. Uh, One of the first things that I, I remember in terms of, and I don't know if it's necessarily sexuality or was it the awareness that I could be a sexual being was... My brother and I, I have two younger brothers, and my youngest brother and I were playing a game where we were chasing each other around the house pretending to be vampires. And I hid in a closet, and he found me in the closet and came over and bit my neck. And this jolt of electricity went through me. And I didn't know what it was, and I pushed him away, and I was like, all right, you go hide now. And I sat in the closet in the dark being like, oh my God, what was that? And very distinctively, I knew that it had nothing to do with my brother, but there was something about uh, that moment of just like having my neck bitten that awoke something in me in general. And I could never have put my finger on it at the time, but it was like, oh, I'm alive. And I think my sexuality has always been entwined with this constant realization that I'm alive. Hmm. That's an interesting answer. I've never had somebody answer the question the way you just did, but it brings back a lot of memories about um, studies done on particularly young children and how a lot of their first sexual experiences do happen around their siblings or in like kindergarten or around other children in very innocent ways, just because they're discovering their learning so sometimes it'll be like the playing the doctor kind of thing or inspecting each other's genitals but yours is even more innocent than that it was just kind of like a neck bite yeah and and like you know i've i've spoken to partners about this because we've obviously gone back and dissected our first experiences and you know some of them have told me that it was like they were wrestling with a sibling or wrestling with a parent or uh they received a hug from their from their aunt or something like that. And they, again, it's that mindset of a child where you don't quite know what it is, but something in you shifts. And there's that wall that comes down where you're like, not this person. It's not this person that's doing it to me. But I just was able to tap into a new feeling in general. And there's reasons why that wall comes down. It's because, you know, incest is not something that we're hardwired to pursue. We're not that's not what we go after but i think that because we're in these intimate relationships with these people as children yeah it makes sense that sometimes our first awakening you might call it is with something or someone that we're close to it's weird that you said that uh incest is not something we're hardwired for in a weird way i think that some of us might be or all of us might be in a sense and let me let me get there because this is (laughs) this is one that needs some unpacking Yeah. yeah okay so i think it's familiarity that 
that prevents incest. It's growing up together and being around that person, that sibling, that prevents the incestuous feelings from manifesting. Because biological attraction does occur between siblings. So when you share DNA with somebody, and the way they know, the way that this has been discovered is by seeing siblings or any kind of family members that were raised apart and met later in life and didn't know they were related. There is a strong sexual attraction hmm. between siblings, between even parents and children. And it is strange and it is against all our cultural understandings and it's very taboo but there is a biological attraction to something that is similar to you hmm. and yeah yeah so i think that a lot of the the incest repulsion that we have is is actually just from being around the the people that we're with that's why like sometimes you grow up with somebody and you don't find them attractive for a long time and then you need a separation you hmm. come back later as adults and you're like oh yeah we grew up together and sometimes you can begin to find that person attractive. But mm. usually if something's so close, you're just like, eh, you know. Like. Well, I think what's really interesting, uh, so first of all, I don't know the science behind this, so I'm going to take us in a direction that maybe I'm a little bit more familiar with, but it's this desire to call someone daddy or to call someone mommy. It's actually really funny. I, I was texting someone about this exactly today, and I'm just going to read you what I said. Um, they asked me what names I like to be called in bed, and I actually said that I like to be called mommy, even though that might come across as a bit weird. And so I, I went back. I said, think of why a woman would want to call a man daddy. It's like what feels good about it is that it's fundamentally forbidden. Every girl wants her daddy, but it's the one man given, you know, the, the patriarch, the head of the family that she can't have. And that doesn't mean she doesn't want a daddy so you can be her daddy. And I said, men are the same. The matriarch is a figure, a figure of both absolute love and discipline that you're wired to please, who gave you life, and who you are simultaneously trying to break free from while also always seeking. Men want mommy, women want daddy. Yeah, so it's a description of the Oedipus complex, in uh, at least when it comes to the, the mommy phenomenon. Yeah. Right? And Freud talked a lot about this, and he was the first to say, you want to fuck your mother. Freud's a dick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Freud's a bit of a dick. I have a love-hate with him. It's a love-hate yeah, with Freud, I, yeah, for I sure. I enjoy what he writes about. I don't always enjoy the context and the authority he puts his theories out with. And also, at the time, we have to respect the theories, yeah. yada, yada. this and that. But the Oedipus complex is is highly interesting. And I do think a lot of these incest taboos are very attractive for people to play out as roles in bed. And I think there are certainly ethical ways to do that. And I think I need to dedicate an episode to exactly that. With ethical people. incest. Oh, absolutely. For sure. All kinds of role play. So DDLG is a big one, Daddy, Dom, Little Girl. Mm. And I do workshops on this at Oasis. And that one has all sorts of issues that of, of ethics when it comes to dependency, a codependency, uh, mental health. There's all these intersections that need to be addressed there because that power dynamic is extremely sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, we went off on a bit of a tangent there, but... I also <laughs> never thought that I would be beginning any kind of story talking about incest or <laughs> these kind of role-playing. But I mean, I'm just... I think that sexuality is so holistic so to lobotomize something like that as, as one of my earliest memories out of shame would be perpetuating this idea that it was wrong when it wasn't wrong. Right. And that's a very refreshing thing to hear. <laughs> and now to the part two. Part two. Okay. Which is, how did you become involved with the sex positive communities? Oof. Okay. Uh, I'll try to keep this as succinct as possible. 
I had a very, very tumultuous relationship with my mother growing up. Uh, I looked at her when I was 15 years old when she was in a fit of rage and she almost moved in slow motion for me suddenly. I could feel her anger radiating off of her and it was like she was foaming at the mouth and I'm sure I'm totally making this up but like veins were popping out of her neck and her eyes were bloodshot and I remember looking at her and just being like if I do everything the opposite of you I'll be happy so everything the opposite of my mom meant not doing drugs not having sex graduating from high school not getting knocked up my my relationship with my mother as a PS, because she does tend to listen to a lot of these podcasts, is much better. And I also have come to a point where I am thankful for my upbringing because it helped wield me from the flames of fury. But I made the promise that I wouldn't sleep with more than 10 people in my entire life. Th- that threshold was only actually crossed a few months ago. It was crossed about a year after I entered the, quote, sex-positive communities. And the ways in which I did that were by picturing this gate in my mind. And on the other side of the gate was this giant open pasture, and that was everything that was possible and available to me. But my 15-year-old self was standing at that gate. And I kept trying to approach this gate. I kept trying to get over this thing in my mind that I was so obsessed with this number as if, like, I needed to be protected from something still. And honestly, beginning to practice or dabble in the world of dominatrix, which for me, it was more psychological domination. I found a couple of people who I was able to uh, experiment with, and that loosened me up in a way. And I met Christopher, my current partner, and a lot of the ways in which he lives and thinks influenced me getting closer to this gate. And finally, over months and months and months, I stood there across from my 15-year-old self and I was able to tell her, hey, we're safe now. I don't need these rules anymore. Like, they're no longer suiting me. I want to be free. I want to be free from this idea I had of what sex could and could not be. And I don't want to feel shame around it anymore. I don't want to feel afraid. And she granted me permission to pass through. And I walked into the other side of the gate and I found all of you fucking people. (laughs) That was, by the way, that was the gates of hell. (laughs) That was the gates of hell. I knew it. I knew it. You you could tell by the horns, I think. Yeah. Standing around. Wow. That's uh, that's quite a powerful bit of self-discovery, I think. Yeah. And I wonder with whether this relationship that you talk about with your mother is at all intersecting with your desire to be called mommy in sexual scenarios (laughs) well i think i've and so i've examined this quite a bit as well but i think the uh infatuation with being called mommy more so has to do with being uh fecund uh impregnable like i never thought i wanted children so for me children in my mind was always forbidden so when i'm you know having sex and this person calls me mommy, uh, if it, it puts me in a role I never envisioned for myself. And it allows me to play with this fantasy because it has always been a fantasy because I never actually thought of myself as a mom or as a caretaker. And I'm with a partner that I finally see myself wanting to have children with one day. So there's this extra layer to it that it is possible. Um, Hopefully not in that moment because I do have an IUD and I'd like to not be pregnant for another few years. But 
uh, yeah, this idea of being called mommy, it's like, yeah, worship me, honor me for the possibility that I will be one day. Tell me that you want to impregnate me because my body is capable. (laughs) I like it. Wonderful. It's accepting all versions of myself. Wonderful. Well, it seems like you've certainly walked through that gate, strode through it, and now you're in, you know, la-la land over here. I am in la-la land. And if anyone has caught a glimpse of Nicole's upcoming book, the illustrations might be a good representation of what this land looks like. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. With or without drugs. It just, it's good. It's a good place to be. Wonderful. The next thing I wanted to ask you is what inspired you to start Girls Who Say Fuck? Mm. And how does that intersect with sex positivity, feminism, and your journalism? Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, Well, I, my life now today looks much different than it did a year and a half two years ago i was on a much different path i was uh working at a television station as an on-air host i was in a seven-year relationship i was living in vancouver my life was kind of all there right in front of me and the way that i describe it is that i fell asleep at the wheel of my own life or that my life started to look like a long hallway without any doors in that I was never going to enter a new room because I was constantly being corralled and told who I was. Therefore, I couldn't ever figure out who I wasn't through experimentation. And I think that's what life is all about. And I met this incredible woman who was on a similar path and wanted to wanted to grow and wanted to change and break free. And through each other, we just found bravery. And I believe and I've seen that every unabashed act of bravery has always led to an astute moment of clarity. So I kept being brave in every decision I made and I eventually burned my whole life to the ground. I ended my relationship. I quit my career. I packed up my things and I moved to Toronto with this other person and we started something called Girls Who Say Fuck, not knowing what it was except a beacon to find our people. And it served as as a fantastic filter because people will hear me say, oh, I run something called Girls Who Say Fuck, and they're either like, well, what is that? I want to be a part of that. I'm a girl who says fuck, or I'm a guy that says fuck, and I'm like, great. (laughs) (laughs) Let's create a commune. Um, But that's what I mean by a philosophy, right? It's like girls who say fuck in itself is whatever you want it to be. But if you identify with that, then like tell me what you identify with. And, and let's let's continue living that life together. So the, the girl that was previously part of it has left, but that also opened up opportunities for me to, again, figure out what it was and who I was. So it sounds like it's kind of a collective theorizing and forming philosophy between people, and it grows and changes over time. But the tagline itself inspires something in people or it triggers something. So when they hear girls who say fuck, it's got something, some sort of resistance, some sort of maybe revolution. It certainly sounds feminist Mm. or it's got feminist overtones Mm. and rebellion. So I think I understand what you're saying is that people who are attracted to that 
in itself begin to define it and you're interested in those definitions and how they fit towards a holistic framework of understanding between the people involved. Yeah, and it helps me zero in on what it is that I should do next because I'll start to collect those kind of responses and I'll start to collect people who will then tell me what they think is missing in the world or they'll tell me, you know, the whole idea is like challenging the way that we've been told life is supposed to be. And so when I stay curious and I stay in this malleable state because I haven't defined exactly what it is, it allows it to be whatever it needs to be as I move through the world as an individual. And so men who take baths and the orgasm book are born of these constant conversations that I'm having because I haven't allowed myself to be set in stone, which is kind of the opposite of how we're told we should run anything. We should decide, but operating in an area of indecision and uncertainty for me actually works best. Uh, Wandering around in the dark, as I've said before, allows you to bump into things that you didn't even realize you were looking for. So what is it that Girls Who Say Fuck has come to be now over time? Because it's had some existence for some period of time and it's produced certain things and perhaps this philosophy has grown to have or adopt certain meanings. So where does it stand now? Well, I, w- I would say that, that fundamentally Girls Who Say Fuck is a philosophy. Uh, and for the longest time, I didn't think that was enough. I think I needed to be selling things or organizing more events. That's just not where I'm at right now. The philosophy is the philosophy that I live my life by, which is if it's not a fuck yes, it's a no. And that has so many layers to it because it says, trust your instincts. Like you already know the answer. And then all of the the floodgates of doubt come in and the unworthiness or whatever it is that causes you to second guess something that you already know in that split second of silence that you're offered an opportunity, you know the answer. And the other part of it is being okay with wandering in the dark. Like we are not taught that it's okay to feel lost. We should celebrate when someone says that they feel lost. It's because they were uncomfortable in whatever it was that they were doing previously that they had the courage to even say, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Like I celebrate anybody that tells me they don't know what the fuck they're doing because I'm like, oh, what a fantastic opportunity for you to wander, to try new things, to meet new people. Like, thank God you haven't allowed yourself to be so afraid of the dark that you stay in the light for the sake of looking like you have your shit together. So it sounds to me like you are kind of resistant to or maybe you you have a distaste for templative living, for following some sort of preordained script. Mm where people don't really get to reflect on their behaviors and their decisions and they end up in things and then they continue. Uh, I picture again the corridor that you mentioned Mm. when you were talking about your career and the restrictions that can place on understanding your own subjectivity, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So I'm seeing what you're saying as this, this philosophy that enables people to rethink and reassess their position and whether or not the decisions they made were truly theirs versus how much we're influenced by outside factors and how much we're influenced by our own idea of the identity we believe we should possess for whatever reason. So I like to encourage people to get really curious about themselves. And the other part of that, and again, like I think, uh, wow, family is a real theme here for me, but through my mother, uh, there's a period of about 15 minutes that defined 
who I am, that defined my life. And it was the walk from my house to my high school. And growing up in a relatively violent household, you could ask anybody at my high school and they would never know that anything was going on. I was captain of the basketball teams and the dance squads and I was a public speaker and I was head of the yearbook and blah, 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 blah. But no one would ever know. And that's because I was able to meditate on myself during that walk. And I came across this term called ataraxia. And it's the ability, essentially, it's tranquility, but it's the ability to stay calm in the eye of the storm. And I've had that because I grew up in a storm and I learned how to not get swept up by the the tornado of another person. And so I'm able to stand really calmly and with certainty in the midst of chaos and actually thrive in that because it allows me to see who I am and it allows me to evaluate myself. So I think that when you have a strong sense of self, you can put yourself or experiment with seemingly more chaotic situations because you're not going to get swept up in it. You're okay wandering in the dark. You're okay trying new things. You're okay to be brave. You're, you're okay to burn your entire life to the ground and be like, reset. How many lives can I live? As many as you want. Getting vibes of radical sense of freedom there. <laughs> Nietzschean vibes of, Nietzschean eternal, vibes of eternal recurrence. Oh God, am I that live transparent? A li- <laughs> live a life of joy, amorphity. Yep. Absolutely. I think there's a there's a well of philosophical depth here that we can get into that would probably be best reserved for a different kind of podcast, yes. one that I would probably also be very interested in conducting since it's part of what I do with my life. Yes, we're veering more in the intellectual and not so much on the erection right now. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe some listeners are there. But I do enjoy this kind of discussion. Now, I want to also ask about the men who take baths. Mm. Uh, program that you program what do i call that program the uh, project project i try to call it a movement sometimes movement. if i'm feeling really bold <laughs> there we go so that movement or project that you started mm-hmm. men who take baths tell me more about it you did mention a little bit that you have these men take baths mm-hmm. you ask them about masculinity so or toxic masculinity uh, rather. masculinity it's not yeah. always toxic okay yeah. could you let me know kind of some of the things that happened when you had these discussions with these men Anything that was notable, interesting? Yes, certainly. Um, Well, I think drawing from the first one that I ever did, so I've gone through a few rounds now. Uh, The first one, I printed off all of the interviews after I had done them so I could just read them uh, as they were. And I noticed that I had highlighted some of uh, similar things in all of them, which I didn't notice when I was doing the interviews, which is that almost all of the men I interviewed grew up without a father. And these were all men that viewed strong women as equals. And I I don't want to just say strong women, just women. They just viewed women as equal. They didn't have to be told that. They grew up with a strong single mom. And that just influenced the ways that they moved through the world. So I started getting really curious about, do we need to eliminate the father figure in order to breed these men that view women as equal? And I hoped the answer was no, but I really leaned into exploring that in the next few rounds that I did. So the other part of it that I would find interesting is how much, so I keep the questions the same, They're the same questions I ask every single time. And I'll ask the same ones year over year because I want to show two things. One, that these men can be given the same question and reflect back completely different answers. And two, culturally, why 
And when do these questions start to feel either outdated um, or that they no longer belong for whatever reason? And one of the questions that I ask is, you know, what does being a man mean to you versus what you're told being a man is? What do you think when you hear a term like toxic masculinity? What does the slogan, the future is female, mean to you? And all of the answers to those change over time. And I want to show that it's okay that they change over time, whether that's internally coming from the man or externally our view looking in on it. And I'm also a firm believer that sometimes why a question needs to be asked at all is almost more important than the answer that's given. That's a very interesting perspective. And I agree with that last sentiment you have. The conditions for the possibility of asking that question is mitigated by the fact that there's external conditions that require that question to be asked or that make that question available in our discourse. Yes. So beyond that, there's two things that I want to ask. One, when can I take a bath? <laughs> and be yes, interrogated right now? because <laughs> we should be doing this yeah, in the bath uh, that'd be so much more right? fun oh my god this that would be so much more inappropriately fun and i would have <laughs> such fewer guests <laughs> but but it would make for a great show uh i think that i would love to participate if if you're gonna have another round i do have my own history with masculinity toxic masculinity mm. and a process of unlearning and my family situation is not one with an absent father. Mm. So there there would be nuances there. I'm very interested. We could talk after the show. Okay, please. So bathe me. Second By the thing, way, for the record, yes. I would love to have you oh, on the next you. round. Yes. <laughs> Yay. Happy to be there. <laughs> and it's not just because you've put me on the spot. Like, you, <laughs> you know, you know me, but you don't know me. I would be honest. If, if, I, if I didn't want your participation, I would have to say so. Um, and then we could talk about that. But... I would love to have your participation. So Wonderful. Yeah. And the second thing that I wanted to ask is what happens with the, I don't want to call it data, the narratives that you collect, the stories, the answers to these questions. Do you publish them in an article? Do you write about it online? Is it recorded by any means? What becomes of the narratives? Organically, it's grown. Um, so the first time I did it, I just recorded it off my phone. I recorded the interviews off my phone, transcribed them and put them up on Girls Who Say Fuck. Just as a, as, as I picked my favorite quotes from each one and I put them up as like one photo essay. Um, it's evolved. Now it's at the point where it can come out from under Girls Who Say Fuck and live on its own. So Men Who Take Baths is currently, uh, is getting its own website. I have a meeting, um, uh, coming up with E1 to potentially turn it into a podcast, which could turn it into a cross-Canada tour where I do interviews of men in bathtubs in front of audiences. It's evolved so the art show is no longer just an art show. Now I have men, I call it the anti-panel panel because I actually don't like panels. Uh, it's more of a group discussion. It's a dialogue um, where I have some of the men who participated talk about their experiences and then we as a group get to discuss and have a public discourse about some of the things that were asked. Not to ever reach a conclusion, but to just get people thinking and to be okay with not reaching some grand conclusion after the narrative that we have. It's not the point. The point is to do the thing together. Uh, and then I interview someone live in front of an audience, which in and of itself is a huge learning experience and opportunity for people to witness the magic of male integrity and vulnerability in that moment because there's some things that I can't capture 
Uh, I'm trying video, so there will be videos that will come out this time. But again, this this project, when I allow it to be its own living, breathing thing, shows me what it wants and when I'm ready to receive it as such. So eventually, a coffee table book, I think once I amass about 300 interviews. Interesting. So a thing that I'm hearing you say here is that you're not really interested in creating or mobilizing a body of knowledge so much as you are in the process of understanding the relation between certain discourses and perhaps power relations so kind of knowledge power dynamic that exists there between understandings of masculinity and the origins of where those types of experiences come from yeah i refer to it as healing the divide so i'm a facilitator of dialogue I can go in and I can extract this information through this mix of warmth and precision when I do have these conversations. And I'm able to take that and present it to a group of people and have them lead the discussion and and show us as a group what we're missing. or, Or it's so funny when you get people in a room and you ask the room, you know, so what is toxic masculinity? And everybody has a different answer. Oh God, my favorite. What is feminism? Everybody has a different answer, you know, and it's different because we're seeing each other in person. We're doing this offline and not to ring a bell at the end and say, all right, guys, we figured out at the end of this session, what's feminism and what's toxic masculinity? No, eventually I'm just like, all right, we have to wrap this up. We're done. And it's like, go think about it. Go do the work. Continue this because knowledge is not finite. You don't reach some grand conclusion and that's it. Now you get to sleep at night. It's constant. It's agony. And I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm also a fan of uh, moving away from conclusion or solution-based thinking. I think the analytical process itself is important and the meta-analysis of why we believe certain things and why a certain discourse happens in a particular context and how that shifts and changes over time. Mm. I'm totally with you on this stuff. And we're at a, diff- <laughs> we're, we're at a and thank you, we're, we're at a really dangerous point because we've started to crucify people for the very questions that they ask by labeling it as ignorance as if we're all supposed to have the answers and never and and never continue asking so when i create these platforms for people to have open honest conversations and the and you know i say at the beginning this is a safe space but my version of a safe space might be different than your version of a safe space so here's mine It's not a place where we tiptoe around truth to try not to offend anyone. We can have elegant disruption. We can disagree with each other and let it be so. You're never going to feel like you're in danger, but you're also going to have your opinions challenged, and that's healthy. I don't want to lose the art of being able to disagree with one another. Yeah, and there's definitely diplomatic ways to disagree with people. Mm-hmm. And I've seen online and offline dialogues that range on the spectrum of, you know, diplomatic, compassionate understanding, non-judgmental stances, and things where you allow each other with kindness to approach a subject. Mm. And then other more, you know, nasty and toxic ways of communicating with each other and the ways that some discourses kind of draw out violence from people. It is possible, yeah. That is, yeah, that's kind of like the worst end of it. So 
the next thing I was going to ask is to uh, tell me a little bit about your journalism and maybe with a focus particularly on one of your articles, like uh, the one titled, It's Time to Get High and Talk to Your Pussy. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, here's what my brand of journalism is not based on my experiences as a person who worked at a news station. I was so tired of being told that I was allowed to report on the ways of the world without being an active participant in changing it for the better. I wasn't able to participate in what was happening because I was a journalist. I had to remain... Right, this objective stance. Exactly. This like I false notion of yes. objectivity. <laughs> yes, completely yeah. false notion. I wouldn't have been able to do men who take baths because once you say you agree... When you agree on something or when you advocate for something, apparently it's supposed to mean that you disagree with everything else. Right. You From the second that you open your mouth, you are choosing a side. I didn't agree with that. What my brand of journalism has evolved into is being a scribe of the times and allowing my experiences to mold how I speak about the things that I see. It's not gonzo journalism. You know, it's not Hunter S. Thompson. Um, I try not to necessarily influence But I observe. I put myself in situations where I can absorb what's happening and then I can experiment with it on my own and I can put it out there for you to see. So, you know, the the piece, it's time to get high and talk to your pussy, you'll read that, whether or not you have a pussy, it's all good. And you'll see me interwoven in that narrative without necessarily needing to corral it in a direction or another. Okay. So I think I understand what you're saying. And part of it for me is that I enjoy is this idea of rejecting this absurd notion of, of a stance of objectivity as though that were possible for an individual person to do. It's assuming that there's a God's eye view that you can take and, and truly be there. And I think that's lazy in, in a lot of ways. It's very lazy because it it ignores the possibility of you being reflexive about your own biases, your own context, your own reasons for being there. And there's so much that could be justified up front if people were honest about their stances. And you could still do fantastic journalism. Just be like, this is me. This is how I come into the picture. This is what allows me to be here and to conduct this interview. And here are how I feel about it and, and the, the personal experiences I've had with these sorts of contexts and things. Mm -hmm. And then the viewer can have a more nuanced perspective of what's going on there. What is the relationship between the journalist and and their subjects? Because there is a relationship there. And if it's not acknowledged, then it's just assumed that everything that's printed is truth. Mm -hmm. And we've come to learn that that's problematic. And it's not always the case. No. And you're an expert of your own experiences. Again, to try to take that out of the equation would be doing a disservice to the life that you're living and this gift that you have of being here and presenting people with a mirror in which they can see themselves or not. And then hopefully step away from that and ask why, but they have to see a human there for it to have an impact. Yeah. As I've been trying to pitch this podcast 
for media companies to pick up on, I make a point of saying that I ask questions and I listen and I try not to do too much of the talking because it's a platform for my guests, not to highlight me. But in the same breath, I also do want to acknowledge that I take a, a similar position to you. I'm not going to stand here and pretend like I don't have, uh, you know, politics, mm-hmm. like I don't have interests, like I don't have experiences, biases, and arguments and leanings. Mm-hmm. And I'll make that perfectly clear to the people that I talk with. And I, I don't see why I should want to even pretend like I have no stake in this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what is a conversation really at the end of the day, right? It's two people presenting the ways in which they've come to see the world and then hopefully coming to some kind of understanding or not. But if both people are trying to remain so objective and unbiased, like what are we even doing here? Bullshitting. <laughs> Bullshitting. That's placating. That's like Yeah, we f- will yeah. fall into the trenches of placating one another. Absolutely. Okay, I think it's time we get to talk about your upcoming book. Okay. Let's go with this. Let's uh, let's put it into context. So before we give the the history of the 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 book, let's give our little history why you're here. You're sitting here today because I encountered you on a filming of a promo video for your upcoming book, which was actually very I don't know what to call it, high production. It seemed to be, you know, you had a lot of things going on there to promote a book, which is really cool. And I was there with my partner, Yasmin, and we were asked to make out in a bathroom stall as you passed by us reciting some Susian um, part of your book. Yes, yes. And after that, I thought, what a perfect guest. (laughs) (laughs) And I immediately approached you to, to be here today and here you are there will be potholes and loopholes and cuckolds galore pterodactyls and scribbles like whore on a door and then that's when you guys fell out of the bathroom stall making out with the words whore written on a bathroom stall door exactly oh my god those words are imprinted in my memory how many takes did we do <laughs> oh man so many but it looks great i will tell fantastic. you fantastic we have sound issues that that's what it was there was something picking up on the yeah we're uh, re-recording that one part on thursday actually but so I'm not going to be in it? No, you are going to be in it. Okay. I'm just recording the voice. Okay. Yeah, you're straight. in it. Okay. Good. Yeah. And we picked a perfect take. Yeah, it's like rips off your hat. Oh, Woo. it's good. You guys look fighting. Amazing. Yeah. When can people see this? Uh, well, I'm launching a Kickstarter. So the video, the reason for the video is to is to launch a Kickstarter, uh, to raise money to actually publish the book, pay my illustrator, and put some money towards this giant Volvo art car that I want to drive across Canada. Um. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking I'll probably launch the Kickstarter mm, around November 20th, 21st. Yeah, the video will come on near the end of the month. I'm going to give it one month to raise about $6,000. Okay. Yeah. So this uh, this episode can help promote the video and we'll do a little cross promotion yes. stuff for it to, to, to kick off. I just really hope that the Volvo car that you decide to create is a Volvo. Oh, man, I'm, I'm really going to push for it. Mark right. my words, I will be reaching out to them for something. Okay. Even if it's just hats in their lettering that says Volva. Yeah, that'd be so fucking awesome. I know. Okay. So tell me about the, the origin of this book. I don't even know. I didn't ask you on set. There wasn't time. We were doing lots of takes. So I don't really know why you wrote this book. Why mm. you would want to write this book. Who would want to read it? <laughs> and, oh, well, no, I, yes, I'm well. asking those, <laughs> those questions. 
Well, okay. You, because we've gone so deep and we've covered so many things, luckily I don't have to do too much backtracking, but part of that period of my life where I woke up um, and burned everything to the ground, one of the things that was a catalyst was a sexual awakening. Um, I, after I left my relationship, I didn't move to Toronto for a few months. And in that time, I met somebody who like worship I, I the word worship is iffy to use right because that doesn't necessarily mean subservient worship in that I felt like I was fully able to express myself as a woman because this person took the time to lure the wildness out of me and only through a sense of worship, which is dedication and time spent and curiosity, was I able to access this part of myself. And because of this time that this person spent with me and this intimacy, I was able to wake the fuck up. My orgasms woke me up and gave me this new way of moving through the world. And I started asking myself, like, oh my god, if women knew the power of their pleasure and of their pussy, how would that change things? How would that change the way that they view themselves and the way that they move through the world? And what places can our orgasms take us? And it was right around that time that I learned about the term le petit mort, which in French is the little death, which is how they describe orgasms, is dying. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And that's what orgasms felt like to me it felt like dying and i obliterated and became part of all things and it was almost like being on mushrooms where i understood how everything was connected oneness through orgasm oneness through orgasm it's the great at oneness and then when i came back into my body it was a sense of peace and that's when this idea that the universe is between our legs we are the creator of all things. Your pussy is a source of power and orgasms give you wings. And <laughs> I needed funny? to write about it. Of course. These stupid rhymes can't stay in my head. So why the Susian approach? Because I think that there's a fantastic opportunity to use humor as a vessel to carry a larger message. It's approachable. It allows me to not play by any rules, which at this point, you know, I like to do. Um, it makes it so it's rhymy, it's fun. It doesn't need to be taken seriously if you don't want to take it seriously. It's there for you to enjoy however you want to enjoy it. I'm also a huge fan of the intersection between education and entertainment. And I think that the world is so scary and we're so tapped in and it's so full of shit that we need to laugh. There's a beautiful release in laughter. And if I can provide that, um, that feels really good for me. I guess part of the last question is why would people want to read this book? If we touch on some of the content, so there's reasons that, you're, that you've mentioned just now, which is learning things about your body, mm. learning to appreciate pleasure, orgasm, laughter, mm -hmm the joy of pleasure so it's got 
kind of sex positivity built in uh, and and some forms of, of liberation. What about the illustrations? From my perspective, that's also a, a strong pull to the book. From what I saw online, they're quite good. Yeah, that's my illustrator. Uh, her Instagram is at snake.titty, like T-I-D-D-Y. I love that spelling. Yeah, she uh, she's phenomenal. And I pin people right away. Like if I see their work, I know right away. I'm like, I, I have to work with that person. Uh, ja, my photographer for Men Who Take Bath, saw his work, was like, I need to work with this person. He was in LA. I called him right away and I was like, do you want to do this thing? Felt the same way about my illustrator for the orgasm book. Just knew her style was what I wanted. And you're right, the illustrations do tell a large part of the story. Um, With Girls Who Say Fuck, for instance, the mascot is uh, a jackalope, this mystical creature. For the orgasm book, it's an (laughs) e-jackalope. Amazing. I also saw the pterodactyl. The pterodactyl. It looks great. Yes. So many strange creatures, which again is part of using humor, right? I, I I can do these things and I don't have to explain myself. Also, the book is not going to teach you necessarily about your anatomy. It's not going to tell you what's right or wrong. It's going to hopefully instigate you getting curious about yourself. Um, so who is it for? Well, I think it's for people that have pussies and people that don't have pussies. I really want, in the same way that Dr. Seuss is universally understood, loved, and accepted, I would want a book like this to kind of, I don't know, hit the ground in the same way where it's not about telling you, again, what's right or wrong. It's about you feeling like you can explore in a shame-free way the things that bring you pleasure. I don't know how else I would describe it. I think when I think about the book and I think about the possibilities, I just want women to feel truly to feel like they have the universe between their legs. Like you are God. You are a creator. When I obliterated into nothingness through sweet orgasm, I was like, man, Like, we did this, and we do this together. I want men to also get excited about being able to take women to those places. And I use the term men and women, and there will be a disclaimer in the book, because those are are the terms that I understand, and that's, again, I'm the expert of my own experiences. I've grown up as a white, straight woman. Um, But I really think that this could be a dialogue for everybody. Right. So the last thing that I typically ask is if you have a wild, fun, sexy story and on a light note, and these typically make for very, very good (laughs) tidbits. A wild, fun, sexy story? Either one, a combination of those things, whatever it is. Oh, geez. Plenty. I feel like I am on the most exciting sexual journey right now because I'm on the other side of that gate because I'm running wildly through the, through this open pasture where I'm learning to live without shame and I'm finding so many wonderful people that want to also explore these things so uh oh my gosh well I would say that recently something and this is this is this is for entertainment you know because I can talk about my lover and I can talk about you know, being in love and squirting and these levels that I'm reaching with this person because we have such an intimate connection. And I can talk about that and, and I am wildly 
wonderfully in love and it has also opened up so many things but that's a whole other thing so what i'll do is i'll i'll give one of the wilder stories which is i went to detroit uh a few weeks ago and a man wanted me to use him as a footstool and so i was in his place and i uh i I use him as a footstool i'm sitting in this big queenly chair and i get him to read me count of monte cristo because it's like who doesn't want furniture that also reads to them so he was reading me this book and later that night we ended up going to this big party um theater bazaar and i ran up to the stage because i saw my friend was on a stage and He was like, Nicole, come up here, come up here. So I came up and they were doing a big ritual. They were doing a big ritualistic sacrifice. And the only place left to sit on stage was in this queen chair. So this dominatrix was like, oh, you must sit here. It was made for you. So I was like, great. So I sat down and snapped my finger and my sub, uh, who was in the crowd, ran right up on stage, knew exactly what to do, got down on all fours and was my footstool on stage in front of 200 people. And then it gets better. The the dom was like, you know, what is something we wish we had in this world? Like men who were furniture, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm sitting behind her. She can't see that I'm actually using a man as a footstool as we speak. The synchronicity is unprecedented. So I walk up to her and I was like, I'm actually using a guy as a footstool right behind you. And she interviewed me on stage about power dynamics. And then her and I got everyone to chant about orgasms because I told her about the orgasm book. So I went back and sat in the chair using a man as a footstool for an hour and a half on stage while everyone chanted about orgasms. Wow. Yeah. An hour and a half he stood there as a footstool. He wasn't standing. Crouched. Was on all fours. Yes. Jeez. And other women came up and sat on him. So I like moved my feet and they would sit down and he loved it and he'll never forget it. And that's the thing I love about something like psychological domination. You know, that that's getting a little bit more into the physical, but maybe not in the ways that people would generally assume. But I love tying people up by their minds. I love giving them an experience that they'll never forget. I love being the gatekeeper to that. Amazing. Well, congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Sounds like a wonderful experience. It was. Now, before I let you go, mm. this is your chance to plug away all the things where can people find you what's coming up and where okay so i would say that girls who say fuck uh i'll get I'll, instagram at girls who say fuck at men who take baths at the orgasm book if you want to follow me personally which shows you a lot of behind the scenes of the creation of these things it's at nicole double l n-i-c-o-l-l-e-d-o-u-b-l-e-l and I think you're going to potentially post about when the Orgasm Book Kickstarter comes out. So if you want to support that, if you want a Dr. Seussian book about orgasms to exist in the world, please help me make that possible and give me some of your hard-earned energy in the form of money. And there's also the website, right? The Orgasmbook.com. The Orgasmbook.com is where you can give me your email address. So I will be um, sending out an email to anybody on that list letting them know that the Kickstarter has launched a day before the general public. I'm only going to print 300 books. I'm going to do a limited edition run. There's already 400 people on that list requesting the pre-order link before everyone else. So Wonderful. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Let's just see what happens. All of life is an experiment. (laughs) Well, this has certainly been a fun experiment today. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 
You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty to stimulate your thinking. <laughs> 